compliments of the season, Geek 4 listeners. For this special Christmas episode, I'm joined by Jack Jewers. Jack is an award-winning UK-based filmmaker and author whose web series and short films have been screened at film and digital festivals all over the world. His first novel, The Lost Diary of Samuel Pepys, was published in 2022 and named a Best Historical Fiction Book of the Year by the Sunday Times. Jack joins me to discuss his love of the series, A Ghost Story for Christmas. Listeners, this podcast may remember I discovered a few years ago and became absolutely fascinated with. This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? Jack Dewars, welcome to Geek 4. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about something that I've only recently become aware of in the last couple of years, this series of one-off television plays in the UK called Ghost Stories for Christmas. What is your background with these with these films? You know, I was, um, this is one of the questions that I assumed I would be asked, and I was all set to tell you about how I got into them um, during lockdown, um, you know, on kind of, first of all, uh, uh, discovering uh, a deeper dive into the works of M.R. James, the ghost story writer. Most of the films are based on his work, not all of them, but most of them. And he would write uh, these wonderfully gothic, very unique, very creepy ghost stories in the kind of early 20th century. Um, and yeah, I, I, I got into listening to a lot of them um, during lockdown on sort of long dog walks and things like that, because there wasn't much else to do. Um, and then got into the TV series, which I had seen bits of before, but not really kind of given a deep dive. And then I realized I had to throw all this completely out of the window because my introduction was at school um, in English class. <laughs> my English teacher, um, my, my high school English teacher, Mrs. Overington, um, showed us the Signalman episode uh, of Ghost Story for Christmas, which is, of course, based on a Charles Dickens story. And um, we were all like 13 in this class, completely terrified. Because <laughs> it's like, you know, it's quite an edgy one, that. And it's certainly visually very striking. But I think we were also at the age where we were pretending it didn't bother us. But I think it all gave us all nightmares, you know. And so that was my introduction and probably very formative to Ghost Story for Christmas. And then I sort of, you know, fast forward 25 odd years later and I discovered the rest of them. <laughs> That's good. I, I appreciate that you didn't let the, or you, you let the truth get in the way of a good story. But yeah. um... <laughs> I, I best of both worlds. I did them both anyway. <laughs> well, well it, and actually it is a little different. The, the, I find the, um, M.R. James stories, because mm. uh, there's only the one Dickens adaptation, and then there's a, an yeah. original. In the in, and we're talking the original series, which were done yeah, in the, the original 70s. 1971 to 78. Although there was this weird outlier beforehand, which always gets lumped in with Ghost Story for Christmas, even though it's not. Which yeah. was um, uh, Whistle and I'll Come to You, um, that was done as an episode of an um, arts, a very kind of highfalutin art series called Omnibus in 1968. And um, it starred Michael Horden. And it's this weird, like, it's not that it's semi-documentary, but it's certainly experimental. Um, and it has these kind of long periods where actually not much happens. I think, actually, a slight heresy I'm going to start off with is that I think I think it's actually perhaps 
not aged as well as a lot of people think it has. I think, do we really need quite so many lingering shots of sausages and that kind of thing? Um, it, it, shave five minutes off and I think it'll be perfect. But it is nonetheless very interesting and it started it off. And then um, three years later, uh, we had the stores of Barchester and um, and then another, I think, seven or eight in the 70s until uh, 90, was it? The, the Ice House was the last one which is one of the, the original ones. Um, and then it was revived many years later in 2005 by Mark Gatiss and is still going now. It's funny, Gatiss's name has come up a few times in the last few weeks for interviews I've been doing. And he's just somebody who like, when he loves something, he really loves it and he yes. gets his love out there. So Yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, we were just <laughs> off air, we were just talking about the the marvellous Adam Roach, who yeah. does the Secret History of Hollywood podcast. And he um, um, famously, of course, if you're a fan of that, Mark Gatiss uh, very generously gave his time to do some narration for the the introduction to each episode on um Val Luton. and oh my god it was so perfect like like <laughs> i would I, I i would i love all adam's work but that series in particular and like you know yeah. he could he just put together all of mark Gates's stories as an extra as well and i'd listen to those you know, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah tremendous if mark just wants to record an audio version of uh, rm james i i do have a, an audio recording of michael horden reading so oh, he's James good story. and yeah yeah i i agree with you on the, the the feel of the of the of that original episode does not hold yeah. up um they're, yeah they're doing some things that don't actually work uh no. anymore but he's just an amazing actor people who, who don't know the um the the film version of scrooge from 1951 mm-hmm. he's jacob marley and that makes yes always looks the same like he's the, he looks the same in ruling class in the 70s he looks the same yes. in this in 1968 yes look like that have you seen a, a rather obscure hammer movie called demons of the mind no. it's 1973 i think but it was one of those ones that was actually made a couple of years earlier and they put it on the shelf and it is quite extraordinary because rather like whistling i'll come to you um it actually doesn't quite work but it's terribly interesting because it's very experimental it's full of jump cuts and narration and weird stuff like that but it's uh it's incredibly interesting and he is in that he plays um this absolutely rather kind of against the grain for hammer who who tended to be quite kind of traditional in you know Christian equals good, <laughs> you know, higher equals bad. He plays a he plays um, uh, a priest who is absolutely mad, and he's sort of going out to sort of preach to these villagers who who um, you know who who end up sort of well. You have to watch the film, but he's he's not a sympathetic character, um, and he's completely crazy and wild eyed, and his hair going everywhere. But he is still every inch Michael Horton. It couldn't be anybody else, you know. <laughs> Kind of like Tom Baker or somebody, you know, it's yes. like they always play themselves each time, but you don't care because that that self is so compelling. You know? I, I think one of the things that kind of surprised me when I discovered them, and I, I think mm. I just saw like the ad for the, the DVD set on Amazon. Mm. I was like, oh, what, what is this? And they're not actually set at Christmas time. There's nothing no. Christmasy about them. James would read them at Christmas time when he wrote. Them. That's right. He was a, a Don at Oxford, I think. Cambridge. He was he was the provost of King's College in Cambridge, and then he became the provost of Eton College, which is a, a public school, which in the UK means extremely posh private school. <laughs> confusingly, um, yeah, and he was sort of bachelor academic who wrote these amazing ghost stories that he would read to his friends every Christmas. You get into them again during the lockdown. Yeah, and what is your experience reading them now as an adult who probably a little bit more 
aware of your emotions um, than you were as a teenager yeah. <laughs> for the first time? I mean, funnily enough, just this morning, um, I came across the perfect quote to describe the appeal of Emma James, um, both in, in film form and in the original short stories. It's by the writer Simon Marshall-Jones, and he said, despite these tales being part of the fantastique, they are invested with realism as well as a very human dimension. This makes the terror, when it's finally made manifest, all the more horrible and emphatic. There's a gradual realization that all is not as it seems, and so we are forever on the edge of our seats with expectation and anticipation. Doesn't that sum it up so well? That's that gets it right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is interesting. I think um, modern viewers who have not experienced these, um, I, I, I think they're not going to they're not going to be as overwhelmed by the horror. Um, you know, if you're, yeah. to, if you're used to contemporary horror films, but there's this sense of unease that's created in these films. Uh, yes, and, absolutely. And like, yeah, that there are moments of true horror, and when they come, um, they are all the more shocking for it. So, um, one good example, one of the very best of them, uh, both in the in the stories and on the and the TV series, is um, Lost Hearts, mm. which is. An incredibly dark story that has, it's about a, a young boy who's, um, who's become an orphan. It's set in the sort of 1700s or something. And, um, he becomes an orphan and he's sent to live with a kind of distant cousin in a, in his manor in the country called Mr. Abney. And, um, Mr. Abney, it turns out is, uh, is, is an alchemist who actually invites young children to stay with him. And after a while, they disappear. And it is called Lost Hearts for a very prosaic reason <laughs> that becomes very apparent in a scene where, uh, where the, the, the kid finally, um, finally meets the, the two child ghosts that have been haunting him all along. And it is truly horrific, like a yes. genuinely kind of, you know, jaw-dropping, visceral moment. Um, and they showed this at Christmas? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, no, they're not set at Christmas at all. And they're certainly not very Christmassy in feel. No. But no. they are incredibly gothic. They tap into that old British, particularly old English sense mm -hmm. of Christmas time being um, a time for ghost stories. Yeah. Christmas time being a time of the esoteric, of the supernatural. Um, my wife, who's American, thinks that that um, can we swear on this podcast or is yeah, this can, family? Uh, okay, ahead. she thinks we're completely fucked up because of this. I <laughs> <laughs> have said so many times, and she's like, "Where I'm from, Christmas is Charlie Brown, and <laughs> and it's Bing Crosby, and it's Mariah Carey, and here it is apparently, you know, child ghosts with their chest ripped open, you know, or whatever." That's horrific in a different way, uh, quite <laughs> yeah. frankly. The Mariah Carey, the Mariah Carey yes. version. Now, you recently showed her Lost Hearts. I did. I did. I mean, I, I, I think it ruined Hurdy Gurdy music for her forever. Although, as you yourself pointed out, is it possible to ruin Hurdy Gurdy music? <laughs> it's ruined. It's already ruined. <laughs> I think she was. She, she was. Uh, yeah, she did like it. Um, I showed her a couple of them actually. The, the other one, which is. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk about, which is probably my favorite, which is A Warning to the Curious. Uh, I showed her that too, and I think she really liked that one. But So I'm slowly in, in, inducting her <laughs> into the cult of the, you know, the spooky British Christmas. Every once in a while on social media, and I recognize that the audience is very limited for this, but I will just post a still of those two children from Lost Hearts. Oh because they are like, it is the creepiest thing. And then when, yes. you, add, when you add the hurdy-gurdy music, yeah, yeah. Like, like you know, or orally, it just becomes so much more horrifying. Uh, That's right. And and also the fact that the hurdy-gurdy music 
without wanting to get all film studies about this, is diegetic. So yeah. it takes place in the action. It is yeah. one of the kids playing this hurdy-gurdy that he had when he was alive. And um, the tune itself just burrows itself into your brain and yep. it is there when you wake up in the middle of the night. Um, but it is also, funny enough, that story, although it is undoubtedly the... Okay, Stigma, which is one of the later ones, one of the um, the original stories. that You could argue that's darker, but it's also really unpleasant. Whereas this is... Probably, I would say, the darkest while also still being kind of fun. You yeah. know, it is a very enjoyable story. It also very unexpectedly has moments of humour. Um, there's uh, one of the actors in it is uh, Joseph O'Connor, who plays Mr. Abney, this old man, who sort of uh, uh, plays him like a sort of cross between, you know, Donald Pleasance and Alistair Sim. He's this kindly uncle character who has got this kind of horrific secret. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has moments that are genuinely very funny. And like all the best horror, it's not afraid to be funny. Um, While also dealing with incredibly dark themes, you know, a child murder, implications of paedophilia as well. You know, this is an incredibly dark tale, but it is absolutely compelling. And I would suggest there is no more gothic image in the whole of British cinema than those two creepy children standing in the mist. I mean, my God, talk about striking. I think you're right. (laughs) The blue tinge to their skin and the long (gasps) fingernails—it is utterly creepy. I read that when they were, sorry, when they were filming, um, uh, they would uh, apparently those two would sort of ambush the grown-ups when they were like having lunch or something like that, or just they sort of appear in full makeup and just—I think that's really cute. (laughs) I I would love to learn more about those kids because I don't think they go on to do anything else. Uh, No, I don't think so. Unlike the main kid in the story. uh, uh, what was his name? Um, Simon Gibbs Kent, who uh, died tragically young. He actually had a really promising career and uh, was in a lot of films and TV. And then uh, he died um, of an overdose, I believe an accidental overdose, although I don't want to say that for sure, um, when he was in his 20s. So, you know, a sad loss, but he is great in this. He is really, really good as your kind of anchor point as the viewer um uh you know he has this sort of wide-eyed innocence that gives way to uh, uh first of all terror and then by the end when he realizes what mr Abney wants to do to him absolute panic and it's completely chilling he's brilliant well let's go to your favorite um mm. that was morning to the curious morning to the curious yes so this is one of the ones i watched last night so oh okay my brain what did, what did you think of it it is amazing. I love Peter Vaughn. So anything with Peter yeah. Vaughn, I'm, yeah. I'm sold on. I love, I, again, I love the imagery, the, the, um, the recurring character uh, just yes. who haunts him. Yes, yes, the, the phantom. The running at the yes. end. Everything yes. is so good. You see, I think that particular sequence, um, to set up the story, uh, it is set in an area of England called East Anglia, um, specifically in a town called Seaburg or Seabra, which is um, very obviously meant to be a place called Oldborough, which is in Suffolk on the coast. In fact, the, the TV version was filmed in Oldborough as well. Um, and the thing about East Anglia is that it is this, uh, it's rather a kind of ancient landscape for a long time. It's very beautiful, very popular tourist destination, but for a long time, it was physically, a lot of it was physically cut off from the rest of England by marshes. 
um, you know, really difficult to traverse marshes. People would go around on stilts and that sort of thing. It's crazy. Um, and so this was, you know, going back probably 500 years. But I think it has always slightly kept its separate feel. Um, and one of my absolute favourite things to do uh, in that part of England is just to drive around and stop if you see a ruin or stop if you see an old church. Um uh, the Vikings were there. There's a lot of Viking sites there. Um, but also a lot of the churches you go into still have medieval wall paintings, which are incredibly rare in England because first Henry VIII and Oliver Cromwell got rid of them all. And so you'll walk into this kind of desolate church building in the middle of, of a uh, of a sort of a marsh or something. And this is flatland as well. There are very few hills in East Anglia. Um, and suddenly you'll be met with this faded image of hellfire and damnation on the wall and you're like this is a landscape of deep old horror you know somewhere <laughs> in there and um and yes and the the story is about uh this man played by peter vaughan who uh thinks he has discovered the location of the last surviving anglo-saxon crown which um legend has it protects the country from invasion um, there's a voiceover at the beginning which explains that there were three crowns, so the legend goes, and um, they were kind of buried at various places to kind of ward off uh, invaders and sort of bad things. And then over time, I think like one was destroyed, one fell into the sea because of erosion, and there's this one left, which has been guarded by the same family over generations. But then, crucially, the last surviving member of that family has recently died. And Peter Vaughan's character thinks he knows where the crown is. So he goes to get it. And that's a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the sequence you're talking about, actually, um, uh, when just after he's dug up the crown and, you know, uh, it's, it's very tense and he constantly feels like he's being watched. Um, he, uh, 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 he digs it up and he takes it back to his hotel room. And the whole kind of, extended sequence is shot like a dream um it's filled with disorienting cuts um kind of discordant notes he only ever sees this is brilliant i think he he only ever sees at first the ghost out of the corner of his eye but other people see it straight away so like you know he passes a man um who's out to cut reeds in the marsh and then like the man turns and looks as he goes and there's another man following him and then he gets on a train. Is, isn't that creepy? Yeah. It's so it's so brilliantly shot too, because yeah. when he comes out, the man with the reeve is standing there with an instrument that looks like he could be a figure of menace. And yes, that uneasiness, and it's just it's just a reaver. It's not a it's not a big deal. And then yeah. Peter Vaughn's character turns away, and you see from the point of view of the reaver, the yeah. ghost is behind him. Yeah, it's yeah, cool. it's so good. And then the the moment where he finally does kind of see the ghost head on um uh now i think i think this is the first moment you've probably seen it more recently than i have so you can tell me but um there's that incredible jump scare when he's alone in his bedroom and he's got the crown and he's being yeah. followed the lights go out he turns on the torch and he just slowly sweeps the beam across the room and then you see him and oh my god i think yeah. that is such a chilling moment oh it's so good it's so good yeah. and i mean th these were made relatively cheaply we were talking before yeah. i think off air that um you know there were other stories they wanted to do but budget was always a concern they didn't you yeah. know, they, they didn't have a lot of money but they use film techniques so well to evoke yes. a sense of scare 
Yes, absolutely. Don't yeah. have to spend a lot of money. <laughs> no, so innovative. In fact, um, I was thinking, watching a little bit of um, Warning to the Curious earlier, it struck me that I think you can make a direct line connection between particularly the sound work on that film, which is immensely sophisticated, very subtle, and um, The Exorcist, which was out just a few months later, because the soundtrack is full of discordant notes. It's full of kind of screechy violins and plucked strings and sound manipulation. Um, uh, also, like, they use this recurring motif, this, what sounds like an iron lung or something, but it's kind of breathing slowed down, like, like that, except it's it's not it's not meant to be part of the action. It's just there to unsettle the viewer, and you hardly know it's happening. And that is something that William Peter Blatty did in The Exorcist a lot. You know, he'd put little sounds of, you know, at one point it's um, the sounds of, of pigs being slaughtered. That's just in the background. It's so low, you can hardly pocket but it is there just and enough. so yeah just enough just and enough. so that that early 70s uh experimentalism you know whatever was going on in, <laughs> in 1972 73 um yeah absolutely that they, they were they were really interesting exciting filmmakers lawrence gordon clark the director of most of these the 70s films um uh was uh, had a real kind of talent for um experimentation that you kind of don't even know you're being experimented on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as a viewer, it's not heavy-handed, unlike unlike we were saying about Whistle and I'll Come to You, which, you know, is interesting, but it wears its experimentalism on its sleeve. Mm -hmm. um, Clark's direction is much more like touch than that, but God, there's a lot going on. Yeah, and I think, I think contemporary viewers who might come to these films without having seen them without a familiarity might miss some of the experimentation because they, mm. they do look a little masterpiece -y, like the, you know yes. they look um you know that that stayed british tradition but when you kind yeah. of dig at what's going on and i mean especially i i keep going back to lost hearts because that's the one that yeah um it's it's like um uh in in fritz long's m where the the, the whistle the 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 mountain king song that uh that Peter Laurie's character whistles mm. before he kills children, how that yes. song kind of gets stuck in your head. The hurt yes. gets stuck in my head the same way. Yes. And actually that reminds me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> very simple, very, very kind of insidious. Yeah. Um, that reminds me as well um, uh, in the ash tree, um, which is another great episode, um, 1975, I think that one was. Um, he, uh, he uses the recurring theme of just that somebody, humming somebody kind of whistling that appears in the background sometimes you're kind of aware of it sometimes you're not and it is so uh clever and so good for building the sense of tension um the ash tree um, is another extremely interesting one that veers wildly from extremely subtle horror to this sort of massively out there explicit Kind of, did you uh, you seen it recently? The Astro? No, I've never seen the Astro. You know, that's that's on tonight's uh, viewing. So okay, I, I don't want to give away too much for you though. But I mean, <laughs> God, yeah. Okay, so it's the most, um, it's the one that owes the most to the folk horror tradition. I think mm. of British cinema, it's the one that looks most like kind of Hammer or some of the kind of Amicus productions. Um, it it uh, it obviously owes a debt to. Um, 
Witchfinder General or Blood on Satan's Claw, that sort of thing. Um, and also works in a flashback structure. So you're seeing, you know, uh, the origin of the kind of the great evil, the great terror um, that is haunting this particular country house. It's always country houses that it's, it's haunting. Well, country houses or kind of disillusioned academics or whatever. Um, in the city. But Just yeah, the yeah, that's right. Yes, basically <laughs> is what I'm getting from this. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting mix. And yeah, it does kind of similar things. Oh, there's something I want to talk about with that, but no, I don't want to spoil it for you. Oh, good. Um, I have seen it. I have seen it. Okay. All Go right. Ahead. Three words. Three words. Freaking yeah. spider babies. <laughs> like, this is not a Father Ted joke, right? No. Actual spider <laughs> bodies with the heads of babies making little wah, wah, wah sounds. You know, yeah. Merry Christmas, kids. <laughs> Reason I wonder Gen X was so messed up. I mean, my God. But, but I mean, but also, like, I have to say, you have to be working on a pretty sophisticated level to get to that point in the story and not for it just to be absolutely ridiculous and over the top. You've got these little spider puppets with doll heads. Yeah. And it absolutely works. You know, no. it doesn't it doesn't upend the rest of the film. It it is frightening, it is it is effective, it's brilliant. The narrative so beautifully crescendos to that that it yeah. is not just a, a a stop like oh i can't go any further it yes yes it moves you along so that when you get there you're already scared like it's already, yes you're absolutely oh. do you know what that one also has my favorite ending of all the all the stories it's very simple but it's um uh uh mr or oh, what is his name it's by edward petherbridge um sir richard i think uh the main character of the story the, to whom the horrible things are happening um Okay, spoiler alert. You know, skip forward 10 <laughs> seconds if you don't want to know, but he's dead by the end. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, by, by supernatural means. And his fiance, um, played, I think, quite brilliantly, actually, by Lala Ward, who gives this wonderful, subtle, internalized performance. She's very undemonstrative in this. Um, she kind of she comes to the house and is shown into his room and he's lying there. Okay, skip forward 10 seconds again, dead um, <laughs> on the bed. <laughs> and uh, and she just kind of uh, you know, she gives him this very kind of loaded look, this this obviously kind of, you know, regret, but also sort of suspicion. There's a lot, a lot going on there. And she takes off her glove and she just reaches forward and she touches his hand and then she immediately draws her hand away like she's been stung. Mm -hmm. And then it cuts to black. And it's mm -hmm. so good because it suggests a horror to come. And it also claps back to things that you've already learned. And it's just an absolutely lovely moment. I'm curious your your take on the signal man because that's the first in the original series where they 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 move away from James stories and they do a Dickens story. Yeah. It's beautifully done. Um it's funny. I think my 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 adult rewatch of it. Um I mean it's just I'm not sure I can fault it as a story. It it doesn't I don't know, maybe because by that point we're so used to the Emma James stories that going to the Signalman, like, I don't love it like I like the others, but I do really admire it. I think it's a beautiful piece of work. I think Denham Elliott gives an absolutely oh. fantastic performance. Yeah. Um, and that moment, another little spoiler on that here, people, the moment where he finally sees the face of the Phantom and it's him with yeah. no eyes and this stark terrifying white kind of mask um that i think is possibly in terms of single images the most haunting image in the whole series and was famously used as a dvd cover for many years as just sort of white face in the darkness it's no that's really good yeah i'm sure you could pick it apart you know um 
kind of semiotically if you wanted to and talk all about how it's set in the Victorian age and the, you know, the steam railway. And, you know, could you bring in things there about industrialization and the displacement of the traditional kind of folk beliefs and all that kind of thing. And Dickens himself wrote that story as a, as a basically therapy. He had, he yeah. was in a, a train crash. Um, he was in the rear carriage of uh, a steam train that crashed and killed dozens of people. And so he wrote that basically as a way of coping with, with his trauma. Um, so it is a really loaded story. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, it's really good. It's really good. It's not one I instinctively reach to when I'm like, what's my top three or whatever. But yeah, um, yeah it's a really interesting one. To tonally, it's very different. Um, yes. Dickens was just a different storyteller than James. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I, I do find it curious looking back now with hindsight that you have, I think it's four or five James stories and then single yeah. men. And then they, they, they kind of move into, they try some. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did... Contemporary. Um, yeah. What did you think of the original ones? Have you seen them recently? Uh, last year uh, at yeah. Christmas. Yeah. I, you, you described one as unpleasant. Uh, yeah. I, I would say that like they, yeah. they don't have the charm of the original. No, they don't. Do they? No, they don't. Stigma is, um, the one I was talking about, which is, God, it's very, uh, it's very grim. Yeah. That's the thing. There, there's no lightness in it. It's very, uh, I mean, I think Britain in 1977 was obviously, it was, it was going through some stuff. You yeah. know, it was, um, that, that's, uh, that, that was quite a direction to go. And I think it's generally accepted as not a very, successful one no, um, which is it, curious to me because clive clive exton wrote the script and yeah Cl clive exton was a like a prolific script writer um, yeah yeah he does all the poros i think he's involved in the sherlock yeah. holmes like interesting so a man with pedigree yeah yeah it's just interesting i i wonder how much of it is context like if this was just a play for today for example you know like a one-off play um but I wonder how we think of it. Interestingly, there is a Nigel Neal TV play called The Stone Tape from about 1973, I think. And if you have not seen that, do, because it is one of the absolute pinnacles of British TV horror. It's a, it is a sci-fi ghost story. It's just brilliant. And that was originally written as a ghost story for Christmas. Um, but basically they kind of saw it and went, okay, this doesn't quite fit, but it's brilliant. So let's expand it. Let's make it bigger and we'll do it as a one-off. I wonder if they should have done that with, with stigma, um, which is, which is, uh, yeah, it just, it doesn't fit. It's, yeah. I wonder, had it been a standalone or something else, would we be talking about this classic piece of nihilistic 70s TV horror? <laughs> but no, in, in, in the series, it just doesn't sit very well. Yeah. And then there's the the, the revival uh, in the mid two thousands. Mark, Mark yes. Davis comes along. Uh, he's not the only one who's doing um, episodes, but he's done. The, he did the last one. There was one. Was it two nights ago? Uh, no, it's not on yet. It's this Thursday. This Friday, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's Count Magnus, which is. Uh, the one had okay had you asked me the question about they announced it about three weeks ago and had you asked me the question which one would you do if you could do any it, i would have said count magnus the drop of a hat it's such a good story um it is maybe a vampire tale maybe not it's kind of up to you to decide at least it is in the in the in the story you know mm -hmm. you might um he might be more explicit with it in the tv but it is i'm quite looking forward to it um the cast includes uh chris i think 
Okay, I believe will you be corrected on the name? Krista Hendrickson, I think his name is, who played uh, Volander, um, the Henning Mankell detective in the Swedish TV series. And he's so good. And he's in this. I think he narrates it. And so it's really looking forward to that. Um, It's, yeah, it's his his most kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, I suppose you might say it's the most sort of Hammer Horror-esque having mentioned that a couple of times, um, of all the, all the M.R. James tales, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, they've been catchy, I think. Uh, I think some have been really good, some um, without in any way wanting to denigrate the work of very talented people who have made them. I feel that some of them have suffered from the opposite problem to Whistle and I'll Come to You, which is that they really struggle to tell the full story in like, you know, 28, 29 minutes. Like they're begging to have an extra five or 10 minutes of content. Mm. And so therefore they they sometimes feel a little unsatisfying. But that said, I think some are genuinely brilliant. I think um, View from a Hill yeah. is, is absolutely brilliant. So well done. Um, uh, the, what was the, what was the one, The Dead Room, which was the, the other orig- original story they did starring Simon Callow. Yeah. which I, I I don't think has a lot of fans, but I really liked it. I thought it was kind of original and different and, you know. Uh, it doesn't stand out like the originals, the, the last no. originals from the original series to me. No, um, no. And, and I don't no, know I don't, yeah. I think few of them do. Um, but then I think, you know, they are, they're a different, they're a different thing. They are their own series and I'm very glad they're doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see, I mean, there's, there are, several Emma James stories I would love to see them adapt mm-hmm. um I have my list okay. but uh, I would also like to see them try a few authors who you know are not Emma James are not Dickens um be nice to get some female authors you know that there are some brilliant women writers for ghost stories Elizabeth Bowen's uh yes. wartime ghost stories which I yes. discovered when I was doing my PhD they are they are utterly haunting they're yes. quite contemporary um Demon Lover, I think, would be a great addition to this. Oh, yeah, that would be brilliant. Or um, even something like The Yellow Wallpaper, or Charlotte oh, Perkins Gilbert. yes, you know. yes. Um, yeah, so, you know, it would nice be nice to expand it, but um, I also, I, I, you know, I don't want to deny people their traditional fix. <laughs> that much James Ghost Stories. There's room for everything, you know? Yeah. There's room for more. If you were going to adapt some James stories, what would you add? Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> As he gets his list. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, there are of the big ones, the one, the, the kind of main one that's left. Um, okay. There's casting the runes, but any any fan of Night of the Demon wouldn't dream of going near casting the runes. Um, but I think of the big ones left, there is um, Canon Albrecht's scrapbook which uh-huh. was, in terms of my adult appreciation of M.R. James, was my gateway. I, I About 10 years ago, I downloaded a, a, a reading of it by Michael Horton. I can't actually remember, but it was one of the kind of classic ones and was absolutely hooked. That hasn't been done, I think, in part because of its setting. It's set in, uh, in the south of France in this little village, which Mark Gatiss in the 2013 documentary on M.R. James actually visits. And it's so atmospheric. And, you know, I talked about dropping into creepy churches in East Anglia. I mean, my God, if you've ever done that in the south of France, <laughs> I mean, literal, actual devils hanging off the wall. They're incredibly <laughs> atmospheric places. Um, but that one would be great to do. But I would personally, you know, if they handed me the keys to the kingdom, I would love to do some of the much lesser known 
but equally effective Emma James story. Um, there are two in particular that I'm convinced would be much better known if they had sexier titles. There's one called An Episode of Cathedral History, which may or may not be his second or third vampire story, depending on how you translate the Latin at the end, which it all it all hinges on him reading an inscription on a tomb, which is in Latin. And so it, it's that niche of things that you can't actually really appreciate the story unless you speak Latin or have Google. So, you know, but it's so good. It's, it's very contained it's about a sort of some sort of presence some sort of apparition that appears in a cathedral and um it's the description of it uh is this sort of dark presence is absolutely brilliant um this the um an evening's entertainment is the other one again very unassuming title and possibly his darkest story of all it's so like oh it's like a sort of leaden sky it's so dark um uh, also, there's one called a story of a, the story of a disappearance and an appearance, which is really interesting and very difficult to think how you could adapt it because a lot of it is a lot of it depends on weirdly enough a puppet show. Um, there's there's a nightmare sequence. I think one of Emma James's three great dream sequences, um, "Warning to the Curious," is one. "Whistle, I'll come to you," is another, and then this one when. Um, the protagonist uh, who is out looking for his, I think it's his brother who's gone missing. And um, he dreams himself into this creepy Punch and Judy show. Uh, and it's so well done. And then eventually the show, uh, which is sort of like a traveling circus, comes to town and he watches it. And then he sees his brother in the puppet show. Ooh. And it's so weird. But I've honestly, I've never been able to work out the physics of it no matter how many times i read it like is it a full-size puppet show is he a tiny puppet like what is it so my big pitch for this is make the whole thing with puppets make i think it would be thing. really fun oh. <laughs> really the fun to do it like the a, muppets a, present <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah like that thing of you know uh, the muppet christmas carol what would you yeah. do when all the cast of muppets except for one person it's like maybe it's that one you know everyone's a puppet that would be really good and creepy that's a great idea that's a great idea <laughs> Are you up for some fast forward, some quick back and forth? Yes, I'll do my best. <laughs> Hit me. All right. Jack, is there something that you were a huge fan of, but for whatever reason you're no longer into? Oh, girl. Mm. Uh, yes. Okay. I suppose. Uh, what would I think? Okay. I, I mean... And there's a lot of love for things like Mandalorian and Andor. I feel a little bit Star Wars out. Yeah, there's so much content there that yeah. it's like, you know, um, yeah, I think I, I think perhaps but should we say me and Star Wars are on a break yeah. now? I sort of I you know, I sat through the three the three sequels and you know, some some of it was great. I love The Last Jedi. I liked some of the first one and slightly less of the third one. And now I'm like, you know what, you guys take it for a bit and maybe I'll come back for, you know, the next wave. Fair. I interviewed somebody recently. She she went on about Andor, and I didn't even know that was a thing. Like I, no, <laughs> my geek no. cred is like completely shot these days. There's too much. I know, I know what the little mini Yoda guy, you know, who's a puppet, and I know, um, like yeah, I I know that Andor is meant to be very good, but like a lot of the description of it is, you know, oh, it's uh, really adult Star Wars. I'm like, I'm not sure I really want adult Star Wars. No, yeah. no. Anyway, that's just me. I'm really very glad people like it. Yeah. I don't. I don't deny them at all, but I think I think I'm sitting it out. That's fair. 
Uh, kind of touched on this one, but the question's a little broader. If you could make mm-hmm. or remake a film of one literary ghost story to terrify uh, folks at Christmas time, what would you make or remake? Ooh, a literary ghost story. Okay, it's not it's not strictly speaking a ghost story, but maybe you'll allow it. It's a horror story. It's certainly a story of demons and dark powers. I one of my kind of ambitions as a filmmaker, which I am in addition to being a writer, um, I would love to remake Blood on Satan's Claw. Mm-hmm. And my twist, my pitch for this is that uh, you never, you're never sure, rather like the crucible or something, you're never sure whether anything supernatural was going on at all. And it's much more psychological. I would love to do that. That would be, I would happily hand over money to see that. that. (laughs) What is the geekiest thing you own? And you can define geeky however you want. (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, I do have in my attic a very battered and sorry looking Dalek, which which was actually a wedding present, believe it or not. It's not a full-size one. Our attic would not contain a full-size Dalek, Um, but it's also, how would I get it up there? But um, uh, but it's a a very nice kind of scale model, remote-controlled version. The remote control itself is long since lost. I think it's lost its eye stalk. It's lost one of its little ears. You know, it's looking very sorry for itself, but I can't, Bear to part with it because somebody yeah gave it to, along with the kind of you know the fine china and the, and, the, and the duvets there was this Dalek that um is yeah it's sort of guarding our attic against intruders and so I I will never part with it no matter how mothered it looks perfect I think that's that's brilliant <laughs> final question if someone yeah. was looking through your lost diaries three hundred and twenty five years from now what would they discover a murder mystery a rollicking adventure or delicious recipes and film reviews. <laughs> um a little bit of all three perfect perfect <laughs> your novel is out the lost yes. diaries of samuel peeps yes can you tell us a little bit about it yes well samuel peeps uh is a name you, you might be familiar with he wrote um uh over a million words of diary between 1660 and 1669 um it is the most extraordinary and thrilling and fascinating read uh Partly because he saw some of the big events of history, the Great Fire of London, um, you know, the return of of the king after after the the Civil War, all this kind of stuff. Um, But also just for his chronicle of day to day life, his, you know, his work, his love life, which was extremely chaotic. Uh, He was a very bad boy. And, you know, (laughs) as the things he got up to, he's very frank. He's very he doesn't edit himself, all this kind of thing. And then he just stopped. and then went on to live for over 30 years afterwards. Oh. And what we know of his life after that, paint this picture of, of him only just getting started. You know, we know that, for example, um, he was, uh, he became in a, a member of parliament briefly and was then deposed. He was thrown in the Tower of London. Um, he was involved in a case of piracy. He was, you know, all sorts of stuff. There's like, you know, the man had adventures. And so I just thought, what if he hadn't really finished writing his diary? And so I pick it up um, a week after he uh, uh, after he finished writing uh, his published diaries. And um, he is, in my version, he becomes a kind of reluctant uh, detective stroke spy. And as punishment for um, for an indiscretion, 
which you'll find out about if you choose to read the book. Um, he is sent off uh, to investigate the, the brutal murder of um, a king's agent down in Portsmouth, and um, he sort of gets entangled in all sorts of dark and and and, and, and dark and difficult schemes down there. And um, yeah, it's a, I, it is, I, I hope, a, a fun read, as well as being a sort of a, an interesting historical mystery. And um, yes, and also a really great Christmas present, I have to say. Yes, or Epiphany, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Val yes. Valentine's Day. I mean, Valentine's. Yes, yes. <laughs> Valentine's Day. I do. I do. I, I signed a copy for a friend the other day, um, and in the front I put um, uh, to Paul with apologies for page one hundred and seventy. Oh, my love, Jack. And um, you'll just have to read it to find out what happens on page one hundred and seventy. But you know, it's not. That is by way of saying it's not in every respect the ideal Valentine's present. But then it depends on depends on the person in your life. And your relationship and all this. Exactly. Yes. 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 It is it is on my to read list. Um our mutual friend Frankie had has raved about it. So That's very as kind. I Thank am you. slowly getting back into being able to read following the pandemic, uh as oh, my brain has, oh attention span just yeah it's crazy well what what was your cultural cope during the pandemic? What did you mainline? Video games. Yeah. It was the only thing I could do. I couldn't read. I couldn't watch movies. I couldn't watch TV for about a year. Video really? Was the only thing that could turn my brain off. That is fascinating. Yeah. And I was a professor of English and film studies. So Wow. <laughs> like well, I think to read or watch movies was really, really hard. Movies are back. TV is okay. Good. Books. I mean, I, I think everyone sort of had this... You know, I think we had this sort of collective PTSD about that time. And what is so fascinating is that, yeah, everybody I know certainly had their cope, had their kind of, it was either a cultural deep dive, like, you know, you rewatch every episode of the Gilmore Girls, or it was, you know, becoming an expert bread baker or something like that. But it's uh, maybe there's a book in that, actually, what people's <laughs> copes were. I think that's quite an interesting probably, concept. Probably. Yeah. How can people find you on social media and support you? Oh, okay. Uh, that's very kind of you. I'm at Jack Jewers. That's J-A-C-K-J-W-E-R-S on um, on Instagram, uh, Twitter for the time being. Yes. <laughs> and um, Twitter is much of a thing anymore. Day by day um, thing. Day by day. You can also find me find me on Mastodon. Um, and uh, yes, and I'm also jackjewers.com if you want to find out more about my writing and my film work. All right. I'll link to those in the show notes that's very kind of you thank you so much for your time it's been a great conversation i've early oh no thank you early. thank you i've had a wonderful time and um yeah let's do it again sometime maybe with some other kind of uh we'll have to find something else to take a deep dive absolutely. into. absolutely anything you're geeky for i'm happy to hey. talk wonderful thank you so much thank you for joining me on geek four you can follow the show on instagram and twitter at geek four pod or me on twitter at mw boys if you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for. <laughs>